Well, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. Excited to be back and to be with you all this morning as Pastor Felipe is enjoying vacation with family. I just got back from vacation about a week ago as well and feel rejuvenated and refreshed to be with you. Excited to jump into this series that we started for the summer entitled Wanderers and Wrestlers. And this morning we're going to be in episode 4 starting in Genesis chapter 16. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn there, Genesis chapter 16. And if you have the Crossbridge Pinecrest app, go ahead and download it or open it up. Click on the notes section. The scripture is there as well as additional notes that I've given you to kind of follow through throughout the service. One of the values that we have here at Crossbridge is that you would participate with me as we preach God's word, as we work through it together. So as I said, this is episode four. The title of the sermon is Pride and Promise. Uh, I've called the sermon Pride and Promise because these are two of the major themes that come out of Genesis chapter 16. And I'm pretty sure most people in the room have heard this expression before. Pride comes before the fall. This is an infamous statement that is prevalent all over the world. It comes actually from the book of Proverbs, where we see this first uh, shared with us, but it's actually connected all the way back to the very beginning of history in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, in their pride, take of the forbidden fruit, and what comes? A great fall. Now, I think that this is so prevalent, not just because it's found in Scripture and the, the, the Bible and the church is found in every country all over the world, but because this expression is so relevant, we relate with it, that pride comes before the fall in big ways and small ways and so many different aspects of our life. We see that when there is pride, oftentimes what is generated from that is a fall. For me, this happens every single time I go to a buffet. Anybody else feel like that? You go to a buffet and you think to yourself, I can eat all of this. I have to try everything. I will try everything. And so you make multiple plates. You try to build the Himalayas with multiple plates of food. And you eat. And I always think I can handle it. I, I know that there are others like me because we see each other in the buffet line. We give each other the nod like, we know what's up. And then after what happens, in our pride, those of us that do this at the buffet, comes a great fall where you are questioning every decision in life because your body is attacking you. I mean, your body is so mad at you because you've put way too much food in. All you want to do is sleep and wake up a few days later. This happens all the time. I was thinking actually this morning that uh, the, the way that this started for me was Pizza Hut. You guys remember the Pizza Hut back, uh, buffet back 2001, 2002? Phenomenal. <laughs> Phenomenal. But this happens for all of us, right? In some ways that we laugh about, in some ways that we don't, that cause great consequences and difficulty and suffering in our life because pride comes before the fall. And that happens here in Genesis chapter 16. In our three main characters, we're going to see pride generate a great fall. We see that with Abram, with Sarai, and with Hagar. Before we read our passage, we're going to read the first six verses, I want to give you a quick recap so we know where we're at. We started in Genesis chapter 12, where we saw God come to Abram, Abraham, his name has not been changed yet, and God gives him this great promise. 
He's going to be the father of a great nation. He's going to have many offspring. He's going to be given a new land. And that God will bless him and his family, and he will be a blessing to others. What a promise. And then as we saw last week, God establishes with Abram and his family this covenant This covenant that God will uphold these promises. He will carry them forward. He is putting the the responsibility on his shoulders because God is the one that will uphold this covenant promise. See, what this is meant to do for Abram and for Sarai, for all in their family, is to give them great hope that in times of difficulty, in times of waiting, in adversity, they can recall that God has given them these great promises, and he himself has said that he will carry them forward. He will bring them to fruition. Well, our passage this morning picks up 10 years later after Genesis chapter 12, from the very beginning when God called Abram and Sarai to go to a new land, and, and he gave them these promises. 10 years later, we see pride. So if you would read with me the first six verses, Genesis chapter 16, here's what God's word says to us. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, this takes place ten years after that very initial promise when God uh, comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and calls him to this new land. They've been in Canaan now, and they, God has established this covenant with Abram, and they've decided now that they are done with waiting. It's been 10 years. They're done waiting on God, and it's time to take matters into their own hands. This pride comes up, and what they decide to do is to engineer themselves the promises of God in their lives. So they're going to create children because, as she says in verse 2, Sarai says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. What most scholars believe she's referring to is that she's post-menopause. She's about 75 years old. So she's saying, my natural body is not capable of having children. And God has prevented me. He has not acted in the right timing. And so now it's on me to figure out how we're going to have kids, Abram. There's very little room in her mind at all for a miracle. The Lord's prevented me, so we got to figure it out. So she comes up with this idea to take her maidservant, Hagar, 
who's an Egyptian, who, who joined their family while they were in Egypt, and to take her and to use her as a surrogate mother. So Abram, you're going to conceive a child with her, and then that child will be our child of promise. Now, this is not actually an uncommon practice during this time period in many cultures. It was common to have surrogate mothers uh, for different families and, and leaders often. But here what we see is that Sarai has said, I'm taking matters into my own hands. I'm done with waiting. And Abram, here's the plan. We're going to use Hagar as a surrogate. And what does Abram do? He's like, okay. He's passive. He goes right along with it. Now, what's very interesting about what the narrator is doing in Genesis chapter 16 is he's wanting you to connect back to a previous chapter, Genesis chapter 3. Because what is being taught here is that pride comes before the fall. So the narrator wants you to see what takes place in Genesis chapter 3, the very first instance of pride generating the great fall when sin entered the world. And he does this by actually using the same progression of verbs. So in Genesis chapter 16, it says that Sarai saw Hagar, that she took her, and gave her to her husband. If you know Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, what does it say that Eve did? She saw the fruit, she took it, and she gave it to her husband. It's the same progression of verbs. Why? Because the narrator wants us to see the foolishness of Sarai and the passivity of Abram. He's connecting this couple with the very first couple. That Abram and Sarai are just like Adam and Eve. Pride is going to generate a great fall in their life. There's foolishness, there's passivity, and there's about to be dysfunction in their home. Martin Luther, the German reformer, spoke about this expression that St. Augustine uh, generated and came up with, which is called incurvitus in se. Here's what that means. It means that you, what it's speaking about is that we as human beings, our soul, our heart, our mind is curved in on itself. We are curved in on ourselves. The, the classic imagery of this expression is of a hunchback. It's someone bending over, curved in on themselves. Here's what Martin Luther says when he speaks about us as human beings, that we are curved in on ourselves, in curvitus in se. He says, our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Speaking about our human nature, that our human nature is one that in sin we curve in on ourselves. We bend the best gifts of God for our own benefit. We take matters into our own hands. We use any and everything for our own benefit, even God. There's this uh, magazine article, one of the months in 2015 in the New Yorker, that actually picks up this expression. Check out this imagery. It's a picture of a man curved in on himself looking at his phone. 
The article is actually referencing this expression in Curvatus and Say that we as a society have become curved in on ourselves through the little device in our pocket. That we look at this thing and we use it as a means to satisfy all the individual cravings and desires that we have. Either we started to, started to fulfill it through the phone itself or the phone is a gateway to fulfill these cravings. And it's causing us to be hunchbacked people, curved in on ourselves. This is who we are. This is our nature. And in our pride, we begin to curve in. And this is exactly what happens with Abram and Sarai. They're like, you know what? It's time for us to look in. It's time for us to figure out ourselves. So they take matters into their own hands. But before you want to judge them, as I've said, this is us. <laughs> We're the same way. We do the same things in relationships, in family, in career, in different opportunities. We think about ourselves. We take matters into our own hands. We have a tendency to use anything and everything, even God, for our own sake, for what we've determined is good. To somehow in our own engineering generate what the promises we believe we're entitled to or have been given to us. And I think one of the important things for us to wrestle through is why does this happen? Why did this happen with Abram and Sarai that after 10 years they curved in on themselves? Why does it happen with you and me that we curve in on ourselves? And I, I want to say that it's because of our gaze. It's because of what we're focused on. You see, pride comes before the fall, but the reason that pride comes before the fall, if you take a step back, is because we're first focused on ourselves. When you're curved in on yourself, what it generates is pride. And then what it results in is a fall. It's your gaze. It's what you're focused on. It's what you're thinking about. And it's not by accident that all throughout Scripture, God is commanding your gaze. He's commanding what you give your attention to, what you fix your eyes on, what you focus on, because what you focus on is going to affect your behavior, your actions, your thoughts. It's either going to generate humility or it's going to generate pride. I want to read a few passages just to highlight this point. Here's what it says in Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. To the God who created all of these. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Luke 21, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Psalm 105, look to the Lord in his strength and seek his face always. In Hebrews chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. All through, I could have read so many more. All throughout Scripture, God is commanding you to fix your gaze upon Him, to look up. Why? Because our natural reaction in our sin is to look in, it's to curve down. But God is saying, look up because it straightens your soul. Because when you look in, that generates pride, which results in a fall. But when you look up and see God, other things are created and generated in your life. Peace, hope, humility. 
And here, with Abram and Sarai, their gaze was focused in. And so pride comes and a fall happens within their home. But it doesn't only happen with them. It happens to Hagar too. Here's what verse 4 says. When they had engineered this plan, Abram and Sarai, Abram went along with it. Sarai kind of has initiated it. And they decide to use, Sarai, or use Hagar as a surrogate mother. They follow through with the plan. She conceives a child. And when she conceives a child, and she's focused in on herself, what happens? Pride comes. And now in her pride, Hagar begins to look at Sarai in her pain of barrenness and curse her. It says that she looks with contempt, but the Hebrew word is that she curses her. So essentially, here's what happens. Hagar gets pregnant with Abraham's child, and now Hagar goes back to Sarai and essentially treats her like she's less than. Because she can't have a child. Treats her as inferior. Treats her with contempt. Curses her. And that had to be incredibly painful for Sarah. And we know it is because she goes to her husband, again, still acting like Eve, and she begins to blame Abram. Hey, this is all on you. I gave her to you. I had this whole plan. What did you do? Because now she's cursing me. And Abram, being just like Adam, what does he do? Shrugs responsibility off. This is not me. This is you. This is your fault. Your plan, your, your maidservant, you clean up the mess. That's what he says. And so she goes to Hagar, and it says that she deals with her harshly. She's overbearing and harsh, causing Hagar to flee, to run away. Look at the fall that's happened in this home, in this family, because of pride. Two great falls generated both by pride. And it's, it's, it's ironic and it's sad that Sarai, who is the victim of barrenness in the beginning of the story, becomes the victimizer because of pride, which creates a fall. It's a great example of hurt people hurt people. Here, as Hagar flees, something very unexpected happens. She's running into the wilderness. It's really into a desert. She's heading back to Egypt because that's a place of safety for her. And it says that she stops at a spring. Now, a spring in the desert is always a symbol of hope and of life. So she's at this symbol of hope and life in the desert, in the wilderness, and an angel of the Lord shows up to her, and God speaks. And there's a command given to Hagar. The command is to go back. Now, how do you think she took that originally? Like, wait, go back? Like, to Abram and the, the most dysfunctional family in all of Mesopotamia? You want me to go back? Now, why in the world would God command Hagar to not run away and to go back? Now, there's a couple things you may think. One, because it's not only her child. It's also Abram's and so maybe God's commanding her to go back. Abram can be a present father. Maybe it's because running away from your problems never solves anything. And she needs to go face the conflict and work through that adversity. Those things I think all can be true. But I think the main reason very clearly comes out in Scripture is that God knows and he gives her a promise that if you return... There's a promise. After a great fall comes 
this promise. You see, God is teaching two things in this passage, two main things. The first one we've been dealing with the whole time. Pride comes before the fall. The second thing is that promise follows the fall. Pride comes before the fall, but promise follows the fall. First, Abram and Sarai. Great fall has happened in their home. Great dysfunction because of their pride. And what happens right after? God comes to them with a promise. You see, here's, not, here's what does not happen. It's not like God comes to them in Genesis chapter 17 and says, hey, Abram, we got a problem here. I gave you a great promise. Father of a great nation, all these offspring, land, that you're going to be a blessing to other people, that you yourself are going to be blessed, but you have really messed it up. You and Sarai are dysfunctional. You have destructive behavior. Like, I'm going to go find a new couple. That's not what happens. In the very next chapter, do you know what God does? He comes and he further establishes his covenant with Abram. He comes back and he doubles down on the promises. And he tells Abram exactly what he's going to do. He reassures him once again that despite his dysfunctional behavior and his destructive decisions, God is still going to uphold his promise. And there in Genesis chapter 16 is where God changes his name from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. God does not come with judgment and condemnation after their great fall. He comes rather with a promise again of what he will do for them. And I want you to see that because if you have come to faith in Jesus, you've been invited into the new covenant. We're about to partake of a meal that symbolizes and seals the new covenant promises to us in Jesus by grace through faith. And so, just like with Abram and Sarai, when pride arises in your life and there's a fall in a relationship, in your family, in a career, in anything, what God comes to you with after that is not condemnation and judgment. Rather, it's a, an assurance of the promises that are yours. Because God is a God of grace and not performance. You cannot destroy God's promises and blessings in your life because you have not performed well this week. God is not going to look at you and say, hey, you know what? I thought there was potential in you, but you've been really messing it up, so I'm going to go find somebody else to give some promises to. No. You are now a brother and sister in Christ. You are a member of the covenant through Jesus Christ. And the promises of God are final in your life. He comes to you after great falls in your life, and he gives you a promise. That's why Proverbs 24 verse 15 says this. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. Now, you could read that out of the context of Scripture and think, okay, maybe the reason that the righteous fall seven times and then they rise every time is because they're very spiritually mature. They're disciplined. They're strong. But that's not what we see in Scripture. The reason that the righteous fall seven times and keep getting up is because God lifts them up. It's because they understand that if you confess with your mouth your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive. It's because that you know that, as Isaiah says, that you should not fear anything, for God is with you. Do not be dismayed. God will strengthen you. He will uphold you, and he will raise up the righteous with his right hand. 
Notice all the responsibility is on God, not on you. The righteous get up because God lifts them up time and time again. Maybe you've heard this term in the church before, the term sanctification. It could be described different ways. Oftentimes I describe it as the, the process by which God is making you more like Jesus. You're becoming more and more like Jesus after you've come to faith, after you've been justified, set apart, made right with God. Now you enter into the process of sanctification of God making you more like himself. And I was thinking this week as I was reading the passage, really the process of sanctification is God straightening out your soul so that you don't look so much at yourself and you look more at him. That's really what it means for you to become more like Jesus is that you're looking at Jesus more. You're focusing on God more because you understand that when you're curved in on yourself, it generates pride which results in a great fall in your life. But God is working in your life, giving you promise after promise after promise of every time you fall, saying, look to me. I'm a God of grace and mercy and compassion, and the promises that I have for you are still true. Fix your eyes on me, not on yourself, not on your failure. Maybe you resonate with that, and that is encouraging and stirring in your soul, but maybe you feel a little bit like Hagar, less like Abram and Sarai, who are who feel like they're in the in crowd. Hagar feels like the outsider. An outsider in her family, an outsider with God. And so what does she do when there's a fall in her life? She runs away. She's like, I'm out of here. I'm going back to something different, to a place of safety. And maybe you feel like that with God. Maybe you feel like, you know what? When I fall, when I make mistakes, when there's dysfunction, my natural reaction is to run. It's to run from God. It's to run from God's people and his community maybe out of fear, maybe out of shame. It's to run. But I want you to see what happens in this passage with Hagar. Remember I told you that the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar and says that you need to go back. Back to Abram and Sarah. It is not because it's some cold command by God to go back so Abram can just be the father as well and be present. The reason is because God has a promise for Hagar. Look what verse 10 says in Genesis chapter 16. It says, The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. Here's what God promises and is explained even further in Scripture. Hagar is going to be the mother of a great nation. God is going to give her many offspring and God is going to protect them. See, in the midst of her failure, as she's running from God and she's running from the conflict and adversity in her life, God comes to meet her actually with empathy because verse 11 says that God listened to her affliction. He sees her in her pain and her affliction and her turmoil. He hears her and he comes and he delivers to her a promise that she could have never imagined that she's going to be the mother of a great nation that God himself will protect. Wow. She's marveling at the fact that God heard her. And something happens here which is profound. She has the child, and the child's name is to be Ishmael. Do you know what Ishmael means? God hears. Ishmael means God hears. See, God heard, God heard Hagar, and God hears you. Sometimes you may feel like, God doesn't hear me. 
No, he hears you in your pain, in your cries. He hears those prayer requests you've been praying for years upon years. He hears you in your pain. He hears you when you're running away. And she is so moved by the fact that she's come face to face with the God who hears her that something happens here that only happens here in all of Scripture. Hagar has the privilege of conferring a name on God. No other human being in all of Scripture gives God a name, and yet Hagar does. Hagar says, God, you are God of the seeing. Gives a name to God. In worship, she says that, God, you are a God of the seeing. So deeply moved that God cares for her, and God heard her cries, and saw her in her affliction, and her crushed and broken spirit. She responds in worship after God delivers this promise to her. She says, God, you saw me. You're a God of the seeing. See, here are the two things I want you to see, and I want you to hear, and I want you to hold on to. One is that God's promises to you are final. He will carry them through. Doesn't matter your behavior and your dysfunction, he will carry them through. And when you fall, he will come back to you like he went to Abram and Sarai, and he will tell you with his word or through his church that you are safe, and he will carry you forward because it's on him and not on you. He's a God of grace. And secondly, that when you feel like God doesn't see you, oh, he sees you, he's listening. You feel like those prayers are going up into the air and it's empty. No, he's listening. The problem is sometimes we struggle with really believing that God hears because we struggle with believing that we are actually valuable to God. You have probably heard that. If you've been in church for a year, you've heard it a hundred times that you are valuable to God, that God loves you, that you're worthy And yet sometimes, deep down, if we really deconstruct, we have a hard time believing that. Why? Because it doesn't seem like certain things in our life are matching that statement. It doesn't seem like God's listening to those prayer requests. There hasn't been any movement. It doesn't seem like certain things are getting better. Some things have gotten worse. And so maybe you feel like Abram and Sarai, and you're like, God, I've been waiting 10 years. Now it's time for me to figure it out. But God loves you, and he values you. And I want to explain it like this. This watch right here is a Seiko, okay? I know. Don't get jealous. If I were to tell you after service, I'm going to sell this watch for $50,000, okay? If you want to have an offer come up after, it's yours, 50K, okay? It's not worth 500, but I'm selling it for 50K. It's not even worth 100. But I'm selling it for 50K. Nobody would pay 50K for this watch. I I literally have to reset the time every time I put it on, okay? Nobody would pay 50K for this watch because it's not worth it. Why is it not worth $50,000? Because nobody would pay for it. See, value is determined by what somebody will pay for something. If somebody would pay $50,000 for this watch for some reason, all of a sudden now it's actually worth that. Because someone's willing to pay it. Value is determined by what somebody will pay, the cost that they will incur to receive that good. And when you spend your money on something that is valuable to you, what is your natural response? It's to take care of that thing. 
to take really good care of it. As an example, if you decided that you were going to go to Art Basel this year and invest in some really nice art, you had saved up money, you're going to buy a nice piece of art, you're going to spend your hard-earned money because you want to have a nice piece in your house. When you purchase that art, what's going to happen? You're going to make sure that everything is set to protect that valuable painting. You're going to make sure that it's in a great frame, that it's mounted on a secure mount, not on drywall, but on the actual frame of the house. You're going to make sure that it is not in direct sunlight because that can cause the painting to fade. You're going to make sure that you have a humidor that can keep your house at less than 55% humidity because art can actually wither if the humidity is too high. So for those of us in Miami, it's like 10 humidors, you know? You're going to make sure that there's nothing around it to knock it over because it's valuable to you. You spent your hard-earned money. It cost a lot, and it's so that it's valuable, so you're going to protect it, care for it. And I think for many of us, we struggle with feeling like God values us because we don't see the right things happening in our life that make us feel like we're put in a position where we're being valued. It feels like maybe I'm in your house, God, but I feel like a piece of art that you put in direct sunlight. I'm fading. Maybe you feel like, okay, God, I know I'm in the house. I, I, I believe that, but you opened the doors and turned off the humidifiers, and it's July in Miami. I'm withering. We can't see what God is doing. His timing is hard for us to understand. Sometimes the things that we believe are good, God knows are not good, but we don't see it yet. Maybe in time, we all have that, right? You look back, you're like, God, thank you for not giving me that. I know I thought it was good, but it's not. See, our finite minds cannot grasp the infinite mind. We cannot see it, and so we struggle to believe at times whether or not we're valuable to God. But here, I want to tell you how you can know that you are valuable to God. Because he paid the greatest cost for you. He paid the cost of his eternal son. When you don't see all of the things matching up, and you don't feel like everything's working out the way that you would do it for yourself, for your own flourishing, for hope, for life, for peace, and you feel like God doesn't value you, remember that God paid the cost of his eternal son, Christ, on the cross for you. How could you doubt whether or not God values you? He values you more than you could ever imagine. He is working good in your life. You just can't see it. And he paid the ultimate costs for you. And so when you doubt, when you struggle, remember that God is a God of seeing. He sees you. He hears you. And when you fall, he comes to you with promises yet again. Because he's a God of grace. And a God who sees. And who loves. Amen? Will you pray with me?